Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute's Director of Outreach. With me is my usual co-host, retired Navy Captain Intelligence Officer Bill Hamlet, the Deputy Editor-in-Chief of Proceedings Magazine. Hello, Bill. Hey, Ward. Happy Wednesday. Great to be here again. It's great to be here. Uh, we, we have a heat wave going on here in Annapolis. It's actually in the uh, 40s outside. So uh, we've been barely breaking double digits for since Christmas, it seems like. Uh, so it's uh, very, uh, very great to be in the uh, more reasonable temperatures here. Uh, but I guess it's January on the East Coast. So what are you going to do? Um, so uh, we were just telling our Facebook Live audience um, that we have some good news in that the Proceedings podcast is now available on iTunes. That's right. Which is so, fantastic. So if you go to iTunes and you search on U.S. Naval Institute, the one and only podcast under the Naval Institute will, will come up, and that's the Proceedings Podcast. There's, I think, uh, six or seven episodes were posted as of yesterday, and the rest of them should be posted. Uh, this is episode 13. The rest of them yeah. should be posted uh, in the next day or two. Yes, uh, probably by close of business today. Um, and, and so that's great news. Thanks to our tech team for making that happen. Uh, it, it speaks to the growing popularity of the Proceedings Podcast, you know, just this humble little conversation that's taking the world by storm. It's really, really exciting. Um, so I was at the Surface Navy Association yesterday, and you and I will both be there tomorrow. That's right. So as we think about the February issue, January. Uh, I'm sorry, the January issue of Proceedings. Proceedings. Right. Okay, I got it. <laughs> proceedings um it is the surface warfare themed issue to to be coincident with the surface uh uh associations um surface uh navy associations convention and uh there was great interest in what i would say is the lead article in this uh this issue which is our good friend uh who has also been a podcast guest uh kevin Iyer and uh and so I, we draw everyone's attention uh, to that, that article because Kevin puts a really amazing historical context. Uh, he, he and we does. actually talked the about that last, right. last show, in fact. Right. The article is called What Happened to Our Surface Forces? And Kevin goes back to decisions and, and changes in uh, surface force leadership uh, as far back as the early 90s and then goes into uh, some trends in the surface Navy particularly under the Rumsfeld uh, Secretariat, where uh, Secretary Rumsfeld was pushing for a lot of uh, uh, efficiencies in military spending, right? A lot of business process kind of thinking, Harvard Business School, let's apply that, uh, my success in business to the military. Uh, CNO Clark, who was a surface uh, warfare officer, uh, took that to heart. Um, and that distilled down into some um, decisions, uh, a lot of decisions to cut costs and, you know, drive for efficiencies uh, that got us to where we are. So Kevin, you know, just does an amazing job of kind of summarizing 20-something um, years of, of decisions, uh, some of which, you know, looked like logical decisions at the time um, that got us to the point that we're at right now. So uh, as you said at SNA yesterday, you, you sensed a, a bit of a revivalism. They got their, they're starting to get um, uh, you know, their mojo back. They're getting excited about being surface warfare officers and about uh, you know, rebuilding that expertise, that professionalism of being uh, seamen. And, um, you know, but, but also recognizing that 
2017 was a pretty tough year for them. Yeah, absolutely. That That's exactly the, the tenor, the atmosphere over there, and we look forward to going back there tomorrow. Uh, another bit of news uh, at SNA and and fans of the podcast can look forward to uh, this show next month when we're out at West. Uh, I saw our good friend Admiral Moore, who is Nav C, and he has agreed to be our guest the week of of uh, FCA USNI West uh, when we're out in San Diego. So that that'll be it'll be exciting to take the show on the road, um, and then as a special bonus, we're going to get a fantastic guest in. Uh, Admiral Moore. So that's 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 pretty cool. Another bit of news yesterday from SNA is the uh, revelation that they're all in on the next generation frigate and the cost of that ship. So it's somewhere between nine hundred million and a billion dollars per ship. What what is the um, the multiple of ships we should have in oh. the fleet how many right right the big well, but, and, but but right. the types of ships right yes um and and so um th- this this conversation comes up when you talk about okay and we had an extensive conversation on lcs um you know some uh some weeks ago with kevin right. with kevin Iyer, yeah right. and and uh that was a pretty cool show and and got to the sort of bottom of the history of that program so navy's moving on from lcs you know the buy or the you know the, the manufacturer of that is is drawing to a close um and now looking to the future and it looks like it's going to be the next generation frigate um which is uh exciting from a capability standpoint uh, I know that the surface warfare officers I've talked to are very, very keen on this idea um, and hope they get it right in terms of what this ship will do vis-a-vis the rest of any given fleet, you know, uh, or strike group. Because um, that's what we identified is one of the liabilities of LCS is it doesn't plug and play with a carrier strike group necessarily, you know. Um, so that was an interesting bit of news. But today we're not talking ships we're talking airplanes and we're talking about the people who drive airplanes and uh their health and well-being and the sort of uh the we're going to get the pulse of of the ready room if you will um so uh before we do that another bit of aviation news because it seems like every time we've talked aviation on the show here it's been about basically obogs the oxygen system um and it's all been kind of uh bummer stuff you know, and and uh, so to add to that bummer, recently the Airbus Admiral Shoemaker testified that of the total force of of Hornets that we have, half of them are not fleet ready. You know, so that's that's bad news. Yeah, the maintenance backlog that we've talked about, you know, a bit before about aviation, but especially about surface forces over the last couple of months, uh, you know, rearing its ugly head again right now with this with this factor that fifty percent of the Essentially, fifty percent of the Hornet fleet uh, is down for maintenance. Yeah. So they're beg borrowing and stealing from one air wing to another uh, to get ready to go on deployment, and that's uh, that's tough news. So that's our subtext here for this discussion. So, right. Bill, why don't you introduce our yeah? Our guest. So our guest today is Lieutenant Commander Tony Kachansky. Uh, he is a an EA eighteen Growler pilot, and. Uh, uh, he wrote a piece, a commentary in the January issue of Proceedings. It starts on page 10 if you're uh, looking at your uh, January issue. Uh, also, it's uh, posted online and has been, uh, has been on Facebook and on Twitter. Uh, it's called To Fix TAC Air Pilot Retention, Follow the Money. 
Uh, so, Tony, welcome. You're from Pensacola, and I uh, hope it's nice and warm down there, and uh, great to have you on the podcast. Thanks. I'm really glad to be here. I appreciate it. It's a little bit warmer down here than it is up there, and uh, happy to talk about the piece uh, a little bit uh, for the next couple minutes. Yeah, so Tony, we've had a number of things in proceedings over decades about pilot retention bonuses and, you know, what's the right mix and how do you get there and what's the the formulation for them and how long should they stretch, etc. What struck me uh, as original about your piece is that uh, you have this discussion about the investment uh, that that the Navy puts in in you know producing a pilot right, uh, and not just as in hey it costs a million dollars or so to to make a Navy pilot, but your point is that when you total up the number of hours on a fifty sixty eighty million dollar airplane, and that airplane is expected to fly for six thousand seven thousand hours. Um, that when you get a, a pilot to Cat 3 level, which is sort of, you know, you've gone through the rag and you've, you're, you're now like a WTI, you're, uh, you're a fully capable Fleet Hornet pilot or Growler pilot, um, that you are part of that weapon system and there's a significant part of that weapon system cost that's now invested in, in each pilot. And that, that's, a, that's a figure that is... Um, is knowable, right? And, and you put a cost of it, like that's essentially, you know, $40 million worth of training and or, AV, you know, air crew, airframe time that is invested in in each pilot. So could you talk about that a little bit? Sure, sure. Um, so it, you you pretty much summarized it really well, but, you know, when we look at what it what it costs to, to train a pilot, you know, we, we've always looked at what the flight hours are, but we, where we're at today and um, <clears throat> what we haven't been before is we're much more airframe limited in my, my vantage point. We're only buying, uh, from my community, I think we're up to 160 or 180 growlers, which, you know, we have a limited asset here that we cannot continue to overturn uh, to, to retrain and replace people uh, at the current rate that they're leaving. So what I did was I tried to come up with both the published, you know, the fuel that goes into it, um, <clears throat> parts, maintenance, and all that stuff, as well as I took that asset and I broke it down because <clears throat> the way I saw it from the way that the military treats these things, we pay, you know, $9,400 million, whatever it is, for a growler or a super hornet, and we look at that as money gone. And it's not money gone. It's, it's still money that is in um, our hands. We just have to use it in an efficient manner. Um, as we chip down at those six, seven thousand hours, and I realize we can slept the fleet and and do these things to extend it, but it all comes at uh, a further cost. So that's why I didn't go um, much <clears throat> much beyond the six thousand hour number with that. So you take that around, and uh, you can't ever just like the fuel, you can't ever get it back. And well, when uh, anybody who has been in aviation will agree that experiences. Uh, something that you can never substitute with simulator training or anything else, um, we're letting this experience walk out the door and, and we're having to replace it over and over again. And it's it's getting to a rate, um, especially with, with TACIR, which is where my background lies, that we don't have the capacity and the throughput in the training commands and the rags to really replace this stuff over and over again. And even if we did, we're going to run out of airframes um, before we buy new ones with uh, the whole strike fighter gap that everyone's aware of. So that's kind of the where 
where the idea of the paper started um, and then figuring out a way to, to solve that problem. Um, so you know, let's let's uh, remind the audience, Tony, what an, an airline pilot makes nominally because I, I think a lot of people uh, probably are uh, operating under dated information in terms of uh, the, the pay scale. Um, you know, in the wake of 9-11, the airline industry took a massive hit, right? And and it seems like uh, airline pilots were going backwards in terms of compensation. But reading your article, it, it seems like that has, has remedied itself to some degree. So basically, if I'm an airline, if I'm thinking of getting into the airlines, uh, what, what am I looking at in terms of compensation over what period of time? I, I mean, if... So legacy airlines specific, the big Delta, American, uh, United, Southwest, UPS, FedEx, those those we'll call the big six. Um, you're going to start in the the high, um, you know, 70s, 80s, 90s range, some lower, some higher. Um, but the, the growth there is, um, call it exponential. Uh, you look at UPS's pay scale, for instance, you start at 44 the first year and the second year pay is 180. Um, and I realize these are big numbers, and, and not everybody gets there, but that's kind of the baseline that uh, year four, five, six, um, with all the benefits that you're going to get with the airlines, um, you, you're going to be in, in those big numbers. But I, I really hesitate to, to call it a dollar-for-dollar dollar comparison because um, when you look at uh, the things that the Navy can offer and the Department of Defense can offer, I think there's a lot of value that, that they're not taking advantage of when they're coming up with their compensation package. Likewise, there's things that they can't do. Um, you know, at, at an airline, you're typically going to have 13, 14 days off a month. Um, you're going to have family travel benefits. You're going to have uh, 401k auto uh, comp, uh, contribution and things like that, that they're just never going to match. So for me, the, the idea is that we need to come up with something that is um, competitive enough to offer our current pilots um, the security and value and staying in the military today vice the potential of what they're going to get 10, 15 years down the road, where, where it really kind of becomes a, a huge number, if you will, is once you just think captain at a, at a major airline, because um, to any given airline, you could be talking three to $400,000 a year, which is a huge number. Um, and to get there, you got to pay your dues on the front side. Now, if you stick around and wait till retirement, the idea that you're going to upgrade as fast um, because of the way the hiring bubble is going in the airlines is, is probably not going to be there as much. So it's going to be a slower upgrade time. You're giving up quality of life because in, in the airlines, seniority is everything. So you're not going to be able to pick those schedules as, as early on in the time as, as you would if, if you had left early. So there's big trade-offs and there's a lot of variables that um, are more than just dollars and cents straight up. Um, but so you, you're right. getting out at 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 uh, what year mark? Because you're you're in 04. Uh, I just pinned on 04. I uh, I'll have 11 and a half years in um, when when I uh, officially separate. Okay, so that's you're almost as soon as you could have gotten out, basically. Maybe yeah. a little a year or two more than that. Uh, no, my my commitment ended in April, and I'm officially separating in June. Okay, so remind the audience what a pilot's commitment is these days. Uh, wings plus eight. 
so my training, because I had a, a medical situation, uh, was three and a half years when I put my wings on at Meridian, uh, which carried me to 11 years and five months, and I, I'm getting out like a month after that. And Tony, what was your commissioning source? I was ROTC. Okay, so uh, Tony, talk to us about morale in the fleet right now, because um, we've heard some anecdotal things uh, as a result of the, uh, the skywriting incident and some other things. Um, so, it, 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 it are you know here we are in the back of ready. Let's just be in ready eight, right? Um, and it's the fifth month of cruise, um, and the skipper's not in the ready room, and, and we're a, we're a, you know the ready room chairs in the back around the back end table are all, you know, circled and we're having a conversation, you know, does the, does the Navy suck? Um, is this, um, you know, is, are we underway too often? Is, are we not getting enough flight time? Are the jets all, you know, broke too much? Um, you, you know, I don't want to put words in your mouth, what, but, but what is the, what yeah. is the atmosphere there? What's good? What's bad? I mean, I, I think the, the the point that you made about your boss talking uh, about the the Hornet readiness is a huge thing. Um, before we started speaking here, I mean, if if half of our jets are down, uh, that's going to be a, a morale kicker right there because we can't fly. Um, I uh, how, I, how many hours a month is did, uh, did you said eleven uh, sort of in passing? It, what's the nominal right. hours per month for for your average, you know, squad and bubba? Uh, out in the fleet, I cannot tell you that number. I've been in the VTs for the last three and a half, four years. Um, but I know when I left the fleet in 14, right after sequestration hit in 13 for us, um, we got back from deployment, and I had uh, about six months where my, my hour total was under 10 each month. So, um, you know, I, I can't tell you exactly where it's at right now, but if the airplanes aren't I, I know we can't fly and put hours on them for sure. So that was a function of you having to give up your jets when you got back. Why were you only flying nine hours a month? We we did give up. Uh, I remember correctly, we gave up one or two of our jets down to Fallon, uh, and then just getting everything out of phase um, and, and and back up to the snuff for as far as maintenance and stuff like that. I mean, it's just Optar. And, and, are are you sucking in, in terms of Optar? you know, in that six-month shadow after a deployment? Uh, Optar, if I remember correctly, we were okay on, uh, but we just couldn't burn it because we didn't have the jets to burn it. Oh, okay, okay, got it. So, got it. Um, so yeah, it, as far as that, the, the readiness piece, and I addressed this at the end of the paper, that there are other issues other than um, that we're, we're going to talk about in the back of Ready 8, uh, be it running S, be it op-tempo, uh, you know, the, the 9, 11, 12-month deployments that guys are seeing. I guess 12 is a little long, but, um, you know, there, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of reasons that people leave. It's not just money. Um, my, my argument to that is all of these things are going to take a lot of time to fix. We didn't get here overnight where um, we'll, started running our jets into the ground and started running our people into the ground and, and all of these things to cause um, some of what we call cultural issues that uh, people have addressed. But um, <clears throat> but the one thing that I personally think we can change much quicker and, and have an effect, uh, have the right people around to fix these problems uh, is increasing the compensation package, which uh, goes back to uh, the point of the paper. 
Yeah, so our listeners who haven't uh, read this article yet, uh, there is a bit of a sticker shock for those of us who were not uh, aviators and never got a, a, a retention bonus. But Tony recommends mm-hmm. a, a mega bonus of a million dollars or more over 10 years to effectively uh, help stanch the tide of uh, of pilots leaving the Navy. So that's a big number mm-hmm. to, to, to most people. You hear, oh, my God, you know, pilots want a million dollar bonus. Uh, but break mm-hmm. that down a little bit. And, and you know, how did you get to that number and, and what uh, – you know what does that number allow you to do, and and why do you think that's a that is a uh, a fair and realistic number to to ask for? Uh, it's not a realistic number to ask for, to be honest with you. Um, I don't know, I don't know what the actual number is going to be to turn the tide. I can tell you that what has been offered thus far is not uh, is not achieving the results that I believe leadership intends it to. Um, because, in my opinion, there's been a, a loss of trust between um, the JO level and the, the, the upper echelons um, because of what we've seen. Um, I'll tell you, in my ready room, uh, when we saw the bonus come out for last year, um, knowing full well that the Air Force was doing their 35 by 13 for, I think it was 455000 total, um, and I just went back and read the NDAA. To, to figure out what the limits were. And, and I know the Navy is always going to be a little bit different because we don't offer long-term bonuses like that. Um, but when when we see the problem as, as strongly as it is, especially in the VAQ community where they haven't met a organic pilot department head fill in three years in a row, and they don't, and, and they, they decide that they're only going to offer 30 instead of 35,000. I mean, it, it's penny wise and pound foolish, and that's kind of how I feel like they're coming at this problem. When you look at how much it costs to replace a pilot, you know, and that extra five thousand uh, for call it thirty or forty people is really going to break the bank. Then, then we've got maybe a bigger problem uh, beyond that. But yeah, whereas um, you know, as you as you point out, and we talked a little bit about earlier, you know, ten percent of uh, of an air of an aircraft, you know, flight time, total flight time for uh, the the plane itself, a $100 million asset, uh, it takes 10% of the, that plane's 6,000 flight hours to get a pilot to a Cat 3 level, right? So you're investing $10 million in that JO pilot who now, as lieutenant commander, after that eight-year commitment, can walk. So that $10 million investment, and you, you're saying, hey, why are they being... Why are they nickel and dime, and why not offer the full thirty-five thousand dollars that the NDAA can offer? Allows us, to, allows the Navy to offer to keep that guy or gal, you know, in the in the cockpit. You know, you me- you just mentioned that uh, the VAQ community hasn't met its department head, uh, right. you know, goals or re- or requirement. Um, and so, so how many guys is that, and how many guys are you short? And just for the layman, what is that? What is that? How does that manifest itself uh, in the squadron? Uh, I can't remember the number for last year off the top of my head. Well, I mean, just so just in years. a in a squadron, how many should you right. have? And 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 in just in general terms, how many would you get? Pilot department heads. I think it's one to two per year. Um, and I know two years ago. The, the, the fleet ride requirement was 15. Uh, it was 13 or 15. Um, they had 10 eligible. Of those 10, three uh, declined. 
So you had seven bodies to fill 13 seats. Wow, that's um, nice. And, that, and that's and that's kind of been a, an overarching theme. Uh, if I was projecting, like my buddies and I have for next year, uh, it's going to be a roughly similar percentage. So this affects exactly you. What, then it affects you tactically because you don't have division leads. You don't have guys who are WTI qualified to the level yep. they need to be. Um, and then just you know on the margins, the, the you know knowing what to do on Liberty, knowing how to do a Fallon debt, you know, all, all the stuff that you leverage almost without thinking about it on your department is, is suddenly gone. And don't forget the people that do stick around. They're also taking on that extra load now too, which is going to affect their quality of life and, yeah. and whether or not they want to stick around even later. So it's kind of a domino effect, if you will, by, by not filling those seats. Now, uh, what they have done in the past is use NFOs and uh, VSA transitions to fill those seats in the VAQ side, um, but last year they were unable to do that because VFA selected at 100% for department head pilot. So this is this is a VAQ problem specifically, it, but it's no, it, it is a, it's a VFA VAQ problem. It is a tactical problem because if if VFA is selecting at 100% now, they're losing the selectivity that they can. Uh, can have in the uh, in their department head fill. In in addition to the fact that what what really that that shows, if you look at the last couple of years, um, and um, Captain Bayes had a slide in his presentation at Tailhook of kind of where they are, uh, showing trend lines for the past couple of years, especially uh, in the VAQ VFA pilot. The trend lines show that they're not going to make the mark next year. So, so when you say Tony, when you say uh, selecting at a hundred percent, that means everybody who's eligible is getting it. Is that yes. what you, is that what we mean? Right. So they're not. So there's no selectivity. Nobody's nobody's not getting a department head slot. Every pilot who is eligible and wants a department head slot is getting it. Okay, got it. This is yeah. So, um, so what's the point of having a board? That's right. Well, there, there's that, but you're also, I mean. <clears throat> you're also losing out on uh, a lot of quality people that are choosing to walk out the door. And I believe that some of those quality people uh, could, could do much greater good in helping to solve these problems than to where they're going. But, you know, there's no incentive for them to stay. Uh, and, and unfortunately we can't say, well, why don't you fly more? Um, we can't say, you know, your family's going to travel for free now. The, the only thing that we have to turn uh, the tipping point in the fashion that it needs to be turned, which is fairly quickly, um, in my opinion, is uh, in a monetary fashion that is at least showing good faith by leadership that they understand what they're expecting us to take on because we did not create these problems in the fleet. The, the people that you're asking to solve these problems did not create them. And they're, they're very complex, difficult problems. The, I mean, how do you ma- magically get half your hornets back up overnight? You can't do it. I mean, how do you how do you change your carrier presences around the world where you can still be the on-call ready force and, and be able to, to be that power projection that we in the Navy need to be? I mean, I, I can't say that, that money can solve those things, but what I can say is that if I go down to the gas station and buy a gallon of, gallon of milk, it costs more today than it did when I signed up 11 years ago. All right. You make the point that monthly flight pay has not changed since 1990. So Correct. that's that's really significant. So well, but go go through the numbers, Tony, just basically. Uh, 
you know, because you do put some specific numbers in in the mm-hmm. in the post here in in the feature. Um, so mm-hmm. so go, go through not to get in, into the weeds of of uh, the numbers side of it, but just some some of the basics to Bill's point about flight pay. Let's go over those numbers. Okay. So monthly flight pay, uh, it did change, I believe, in 98 or 99 for over 14 years, but the, the bulk of it, your lieutenants, are, are going to be in that uh, that 6- to 10-year range, and that has not changed since 1990. So $650 a month to uh, to be a uh, an aviator in the Navy, uh, and this is not tax air specific. Uh, and uh, if you just inflation adjust that to, to today's dollars, um, from 1990 to today, it's it's almost double. I think the number was right around like 1,268 bucks. Um, you know, but that's a significant amount of, of money every year. That um, if if you're not paying that effectively, you're telling me as a pilot, um, because of the way that I'm being compensated for my job, that I am worth half as much to this organization as a pilot was 27 years ago. Yep. That's an interesting point. Right? Well, I, I've never heard it framed like that, but I mean, that's that's makes sense to yeah, me. It, it does. I mean, that, that's. I mean, that's the, the whole idea that that money doesn't matter and pay is not going to fix it. Well, why do we pay it all? The the whole thing in the society is, you know, an organization shows you your value based on compensation. And I'm not saying that um, you know it, it's always equal or fair, but. Um, over time, if, if you don't have any sort of adjustment like that, you, you're, you're definitely sending a clear message, which is what, uh, what I was trying to say before my phone cut off as far as um, not using that extra 5000 when you could have. That sent a clear message uh, down to the ready rooms, down to the JOs of how leadership really saw this problem going forward. They, they don't see it as a problem uh, if they don't feel that they need to exhaust that, that extra couple just to save this monumental investment. Well, that, that reminds me of, uh, I want to say, late 80s, early 90s. A, uh, it was an all, not just a, a, a squadron AOM, but it was like an all NAS Oceana AOM with uh, the guy that was back in the day of Oppo 5, um, which mm-hmm. just doesn't exist anymore. But uh, um, so, the you know, it was like free shot on an admiral kind of a thing. And, uh, and, uh, it got a little bit contentious because people were positing logic like you you're talking about, and this uh, this three star got a little bit got his back up, and he finally blurted out, "Talk with your feet," and we had a real <laughs> retention problem in Tac Air around the Tomcat and A6 communities for the five years after that, and that became this refrain in the Jo Mafia: "Talk with your feet," you know, and that's. Pre nine eleven, the airlines, the economics, and people could diagram the crossover curve, and you know all those sorts of things that you're talking about in the, in the article here. Did yeah. that become a bumper sticker at any NES Oceana? No, but it should have. Should have been. Yeah, <laughs> um, but you know, it's just one of these infamous um, sort of admiral being obtuse. You know, kind of, uh, you know, and, and right. they, they forget what it is to have options as a JO because this guy's been in you know twenty eight thirty years. Um, right. And he just figures everybody else is going to do that, this, you know, the same. What else would you do? Fly for the airlines? Like, yes, sir, that's in fact what I'm going to do. And here's what the economics of that are, and here's what the quality of life is, and so forth and so on, you know. And, and so yeah. 
you know, I, I think your article is very powerful with respect to the logic. It's not this emotional rant like I'll do anything, including drive a truck. Just get me out of this, yeah. you know, this situation. Because we used to say that too, right? It's like I will be a right. sales rep for Procter and Gamble. I will. I just can't stand one more, you know, day in in the eight man in in this ready room, you know. Right. Um, and then you calm down and you're like, okay, maybe it's not that bad, um, you know. But to your point. When the logic gets socialized and you hit that sort of crossover point culturally with your year group and those, you know, plus or minus three years of your year group, now we've got a real problem, you know. Um, And and I I, some of what I heard on the margins in, in, in recent years that scared me and I was not aware and I love your article because you do bring the audience, the readership up to speed on what the economics are. Uh, associated with tack air retention, but things like 10 month cruises are the standard, you know, and then, like Mm -hmm. you said, and and then nine hours a month during that first period, you know, in the interdeployment training cycle, when you really should be Mm -hmm. doing FARPs and, and, you know, cross countries and, you know, I mean, nine hours a month, that's one sort of a week, you know? And, and, and so um, that's where whatever the, intangibles of being a you know pilot they make movies about starts to diminish and you start mm-hmm. making these these you know you have these conversations suddenly among your peers and yeah. the navy needs to pay attention you know um and and so uh, you can point to sequestration you can point to post 9-11 op tempo where the car- the rainbow you know went to hell because we were overcommitted. And we're still playing catch up. And now because of sequestration and ship availabilities, you know, it, shipyard periods are longer and ships are broke and, and, and airplanes are broke. And, you know, but there's no yield in terms of the presence commitment in any given AOR. Right. And and so right. this is the old can do thing. And um, and the guys who take it in the shorts are the guys who are in the in the, you know, seagoing squadrons. You know. Which, which in effect turns th- their retention into issues, and, and like I said, the domino effect. And you know, I, I, I we can point at, at, at any number of things, but the, the fact of the matter is, we have, you know, we got to take a step forward tomorrow and the day after. And, and unless we address this in a manner that um, shows that it's being taken seriously and in a way that um, kind of gets the buy-in back. Um, then there's nothing we're going to be able to do. Right. Um, I, they're eventually going to fix all those hornets. I mean, they're they're eventually going to get to the point where uh, hopefully we 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 don't have to have the the global presence that that exists today. But you know, is that going to happen before the people all leave? So that'll never happen. Um, Let me just help you with that one. That'll never happen. R- well, I, I know. Yeah. But fixing the hornets but possibly. What's probably more likely is, and this is what happened in the Tomcat community, um, they were not fixed, and then they just sort of reached flea, and you decommissioned the, the entire, you know, uh, type model series and, and yeah. declared victory, right? And so that's right. that's Legacy Hornet versus Super Hornet versus JSF, um, you know, and, and, and so um, I, I think you're smart to say it starts with the money because it does. The other thing I want to just mm-hmm. address, which is to my yeah. eye, um, and I, I wrote a number of novels about this sort of thing about leadership, you know, in the form mm-hmm. of Soup Campbell. Um, and, and Soup Campbell is sort of every bad CO, right? 
Um, and so okay. what happens, so think of your group, your year group, you know, and mm-hmm. all the, the, the dudes who you want to be COs are now leaving. So who's left behind? The, the guy who probably, you know, never mind what he looks like on paper, I'm talking about, is he a referent leader? You know, and so mm-hmm. I can, I, I was reared by some Vietnam era year groups that I, I, I can tell you sort of anthropologically that the only guys who stayed in the Navy in those years were the twerps, you know. Um, and so mm-hmm. they were, you could go up and down the Fitwing flight line and look at who the COs were, all hated, all driving people out of the Navy. It was not a good era, right? And then Desert Storm, things got better, and I think the Bureau got smarter, and they realized that they weren't addressing some things. But this is what we're inducing as a second-order consequence to guys like Tony getting out of the Navy, right? So Mm -hmm. give it three to five years, and the guys who are COs are going to further exacerbate the problem because they're not reasonable dudes. You know, it's, they're not fun to hang out with in the red room. You don't want to do a roll them. You don't want to go on liberty with them, you know. Right. And as a junior yeah. officer, it's key that as you look to your future, right, you think, do I want to stay and keep doing this for the next 15, 20 years of my life or, or not, right? And looking at that person who you know you would become, yeah. you know, if you're an aviator, it's a squadron CO. If you're a JO on a, you know, as a surface uh, warfare guy, you know, it's a, it's a CO of the, of the DDG. If you're a submariner, it's the CO of the submarine. But looking at that guy who's now your boss and you say, do I, is that what I want to turn into? Right. And if, if he or she is a great leader, uh, and seems to be having fun and is all about, you know, uh, teamwork and leadership and, and service. And this is this is an awesome, you know, lifestyle. Uh, then you're inspired to stay. But if you look at that person and they look miserable, if they're a, not a good leader, right, if they're terrible and make everybody hate them, you, you know, you're you're it's. It, well, it makes it easy it makes to it get easy out. easy to get out. Right. right? Because you just say, I, I don't want to be that. I'm not going to be that. And, Right. It does, but 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 uh, just to throw a counterpoint to that, I mean, I have a choice to become that leader or not. I mean, it, it is not. I'm not saying right. It's, that it, I've had great, great it, CEOs. Or it's not, not destiny, but, right? But but for me, you know, ultimately, um, and what kind of what what it comes down to for me is, um, you know, my my family. You know, if, if it's funny if. If we took if we took all the problems that that, that everybody's addressed in naval aviation or in attack air naval aviation and, and fixed those lickety split versus if we left all those problems there and we matched dollar for dollar what guys are making in the airlines which one of those two things would ultimately lead to better retention and my theory is that ultimately it's going to be the the money side of it not to say that people can be bought and money buys happiness or anything like that but for me Every day I go to work, I'm not doing it for myself. I do it for my kids. And, and what, whatever I can do to leverage my skill set in a manner that I can provide a better quality of life and standard of living for my children, for the next generation, that's what I'm going to do. So even if it's living through bad leadership and hard times and you know working through these readiness issues and op-tempo and all these things, I could do that. But I can't do it uh, with a good conscience at the expense of what my what my children can have, and that's what it ultimately comes down to for me. So yeah, I mean that um, that's that's the logic of a guy that would get out and go to the airlines, you know. And 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 so um, 
all I will say in, in counter to that is um, you you will discover, and we should probably check in with you, say, in a year, mm-hmm. um, sure. what you've left behind. Um, and, and, and so, oh, yeah. you know, I mean, we all know guys uh, in, in who were the squadron bubbas that come back to the reunion and sort of intimate that um, I made a bad choice, you know, uh, in terms of the metaphysics of being a fighter pilot versus being an airline pilot. Um, you know, oh, in terms of the, you know, things you do for your kids, how old are your kids? Are they young? Uh, I got twin one-year-old girls. Yeah, okay, wait till they're teenagers and see how you feel about <laughs> that kind of thing. You know, I think your logic right. will change. Um, and this is the old guy in the room talking to you. Um, so sure. um, I, I, I think I, I will just tell you, and, and, you know, we should probably have a drum that we beat now in this men's uh, sort of, uh, you know, uh, encounter group we have going on here. But but take care of your own point of view, right, and your own own uh, demeanor. And then everything else works from that. But you are correct um, to say that, you know, the economic argument insofar as this is what the airlines are doing, right? Because the other thing that happened was 9-11. And suddenly mm-hmm. first captains are turning into second officers are turning into, you know, furloughed and, you know, that sort of thing. Or the airline that they thought was watertight and rock solid went under or merged with, another airline and, and, uh, you know, those were bad days. I mean, you had about 10 bad years after nine 11, um, that in fact, I, I had a guy uh, who was a squadron mate. Um, and then I did back to back sea duty. Um, and, and I was CAG ops for the same air wing that I was a department head in. And this guy was one of those, uh, sort of uh, had it all figured out kind of, uh, you know, he could diagram the crossover, of airline pay versus, you know, this thing, and he knew bonuses and he, and so forth and so on. Um, and then he, he got out at exactly the wrong time because 9-11 happened. Yeah. He was hired by American. He got furloughed. He had to come back in, but and he left a choice because he was in VF-102. He would have been a war hero because TR mm-hmm. went, you know, and, and fought the war as the third carrier on station and had max sorties. And it was this was the good days to be a Tomcat driver in an F-14B squadron, right? And, and so he instead was on the second fleet staff writing the schedule for JTFX. Um, and, and so timing was kind of is everything, right? And there's some intangibles, obviously. And I'm not telling you anything you don't know. Um, but right. you know, I, I this is why I ask questions about morale and you know, sort of esprit and the referent influence of a CEO. Because like Bill said, and we both know this, um, Bill was in an A7 squadron that became a Hornet squadron in his, one of his early tours. So we kind of count mm-hmm. him as a brown shoe. Um, and uh, I always wore brown shoes. Yeah, exactly. See, that's what I'm saying. Um, and uh, so, you know, for me, I look at the COs I had and, and what kept me in the Navy against all odds against a very bad first tour, very bad first tour. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, was the idea that, Hey, this, this was just a data set of one. I know it can be better because I know guys, as I was going through the rag as a cat one, that if they were my CEO, I would have liked it better. And in fact, I was lucky enough to do this weird reentry as a cat two um, by being the editor of approach magazine, <laughs> which was, you know, normally you go to the rag or top gun and then they were a by name called to be a cat two. I did it by being right. the editor of approach magazine doing a cartoon called Brown Shoes in Action. Um, and so that was a little unorthodox. But that set me right. And all the CEOs I had from that point forward were awesome, right? 
and the yeah. squadron life got better and better. Um, and yeah. then you you sprinkle that with a few you know officers like Tony Les and Mike Mullen um, that I got to work around and and, and follow. And and so you know it was awesome, right? Um, now I was a Rio an NFO, so I didn't have the option that you have uh, with respect mm-hmm. to going to the airlines. Um, but I watched my peer group wrestle with it, and 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 again because of the the year group I'm talking about, nine eleven really did perturbate the the natural order there in a way that. Uh, I think it looks like, based on your math, that it's now remedied, and your logic now becomes consequential, and the Navy has to attend to that in a way that they really have taken their eye off the ball because they've been allowed to, you know, in in, in years. Yeah. So, yeah. Right after so many, well, it, it, the the CAG ops or CAG ops and CAG uh, paddles in the air wing I was in in ninety seven ninety eight, uh, both pilots uh, decided to get out and go to the airlines, and then in two thousand one they were furloughed. So. Yeah. Yeah, right. it was it was a very rough time. And, you know, when 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 you look at it, I think a lot of people just look at the money side of it, and, and I'm aware of the the risks of the industry sides, and and I'm not so naive to think that it's going to be all green grass. There's still going to be corporate policies and uh, training and and all these things that everybody is is kind of fed up with on the Navy side. But um, when uh, <clears throat> when you look at uh, just kind of the direction of, of where we're going and, and the, the frustrations that, that, that I see with, with what my peers are going through. Uh, and it, it, this is not just one ready room having this conversation, and I'm sure it wasn't for you guys either. When, no, it was universal. Thought. Yeah, universal. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's just, it's not being, uh, it, it's being dis- dismissed in, in a way that is kind of losing the, uh, the, the hearts and minds, if you will, and, and that's that was one of the the, the driving factors to, to writing this. And um, you know, it's it, it's not a one size fits all approach, and everybody is going to have their own kind of uh, of way of dealing with it. Um, you know, I think it's important to also note that a lot of guys are leaving and not going to the airlines um, with the, the the opportunities available with Yellow Ribbon and. Uh, MBA programs. I know quite a few guys that are just getting out of flying entirely um, to to go be professionals elsewhere. So, um, but these are smart minds that uh, can solve real problems that we're losing the opportunity to use um, because of essentially a, a couple pennies in the bigger picture. No, that's that's exactly right. So the article's called "To Fix T- Tac Air Pilot Retention, Follow the Money." It's in the current issue, the January issue of Proceedings Magazine. Uh, so Tony, uh, good luck with the transition here. Um, and, uh, you know, let's, let's, uh, keep in touch and, and see how it's going. Thank you for putting this on paper. Uh, hopefully the right people, well, uh, again, because it's in proceedings magazine, we assure you the right people will be reading it. Um, so thanks for putting it all down and, uh, uh thanks for being on the podcast today. Yeah. We'd love to uh, hear from you a year or two from now and let us know how things are going. Absolutely. Sounds good. Thank you guys. All right. Thanks. All right, everybody, that'll do it for this week's show. Remember, victory begins at the U.S. Naval Institute. We'll see you next week.